In this episode, we are carrying on a conversation that we started during our combination therapies and serendipity episode, Dodie. We brought back the discussion that we had with Professor Pete Didon when he talked about collaboration across scientific disciplines being part of his work and then the role of serendipity in research. That's why different strokes from different folks are what matter today on Discovery Matters. My name is Pete Didon. I am a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the Biological Engineering Department. Been here for 31 years. I'm also the lead principal investigator in a group in Singapore studying antimicrobial resistance. It's a long acronym, Singapore MIT Alliance for Research and Technology Antimicrobial Resistance Interdisciplinary Research Group, SMART AMRIRG. So as a reminder, Pete and his team in Singapore found that the combination of rifaximin and clarithromycin would effectively restore the efficacy of the latter drug in the treatment of non-tuberculosis mycobacterium that cause chronic lung-related infections. That's right, I remember that. And they took a combination of drugs from that enormous library of potential treatments and found a way to cure lung infections. We were going to go screen a library of 500,000 compounds over at a facility in Singapore. There's big libraries like this all over the world now. And you have robots taking these compounds, and one by one, you pair them with the clarithromycin, do exactly what we did in the lab, but you do it with robots. Then you can do 100, 200,000 compounds and find a few that have activity. Then you develop those compounds like drugs are normally developed. Change their chemical structure, make them safer, make them more efficacious, and boom, you've got yourself this new combination of drugs that improves clarithromycin potency. Well, in order to do that, we had to develop the assays and get everything set up so that this drug screening uh, entity could do it. And we did that in our lab, in our group in Singapore. That is a lot of compounds to screen through. So what were the shortcuts that they looked at? Well, using data from other records and studies, researchers can really speed up their approach. With their permission, of course. You just don't go screening through people's health records without permission. You look to see, using statistical tools, hey, wait a minute, uh, everybody that got the drug had a much lower incidence of some kind of other disease. That's a big area of science, examining all the data that's out there in the drug trial records, in the hospital records, and looking for new purposes for old drugs. It's a much faster way to get the drugs we need for diseases in a much more cost-effective way. It costs a billion dollars, just the cost of buying pipette tips and lab coats for everybody making the drug, a billion dollars to make a new drug. Can we cut those costs? Can we shorten the timeline to get better drugs? And in the world of antimicrobial resistance, we need new stuff now, fast and cheap for a lot of these global infectious diseases that are coming to the U.S. as climate change arises. Malaria is now showing up on the shores of Florida. So we need now to, to find faster treatments. Well, let's do some repurposing to really accelerate the process. 
The rise of infectious disease is why we need more collaboration here, working where the diseases are rampant and at the same time understanding that that's not usually in the US or Europe. MIT has had a long relationship with Singapore, about 20 years of research activities. Now, why would anybody suffer 12-hour jet lags? It's an 18-hour flight from New York to get to Singapore. It's a long trip. Why would I spend 20% of my time there when I can do stuff here at MIT and not have jet lag? Part of the reason is Singapore's right on the equator, and uh, it is right smack in the middle of some of the world's most horrible infectious diseases, tuberculosis, malaria, dengue virus, Zika, all these uh, global tropical infectious diseases that are now growing in the U.S. and Europe and around the world. So this is the place you go to get patient samples. There would be few patient samples of malaria and tuberculosis, like you said earlier in the U.S. or the U.K. Yes, but look, as Pete warns, we could actually see growing cases because of global warming uh, in of malaria and these diseases in parts of the world that just aren't used to these infectious diseases. If I want to do studies, I have to go to the place where they are. If I want to find physicians that are uh, trained and experienced in treating people with these NTMs, pulmonary NTMs, we're working with a fabulous physician at uh, Tang Tok Seng Hospital. His name is Albert Lim, very experienced with NTMs, and he was recounting treating a teenager with chronic NTMs who was near death. There's a famous story of a woman in New York, a teenager who had uh, cystic fibrosis and had mycobacterium abscessus infection. She was on death's door. And there are colleagues who have these bacterial viruses that are very experimental therapeutics. And he had a cocktail of these viruses against this M. abscessus. This was in the New York Times above the fold at one point a few years ago. They took a sample of this, treated the girl she was cured of the NTM and survived. So that is now a growing new experimental therapeutic for these kinds of tropical NTM diseases. So that's why some of us are in Singapore as part of this group. Now, it's eight MIT professors and about eight professors from the major universities in Singapore, all of us collaborating on a bunch of different projects. So this group in Singapore is just a hotbed of innovation, and there are subgroups all working on different points of care. My group and a couple other groups are making new therapeutics, new antibiotics, new compounds. There's another group that makes diagnostic tools. So, for example, these little point-of-care diagnostics. How do you tell the difference between a bacterial infection and a viral infection when you go to the doctor's office with a fever and a runny nose? Is it, do you need antibiotics or not? Uh, a test like this that you could have right in the doctor's office to say, wait a minute, it's a virus. You don't need antibiotics. Go home, chicken soup, bed rest, all that stuff. Uh, this allows us to better uh, shepherd the antibiotic use and avoid overusing antibiotics and creating antimicrobial resistance. Fascinating. What a wide swath of research. So how does someone in that sort of role within the group stay abreast of everything that the various groups are focusing on? The answer is actually you don't. It's impossible to stay at the cutting edge with all these diverse technologies. I, I'm the group leader. And I think in 67 years on the planet, I've developed the wisdom to, to work with smart people and just let them do their smart stuff. Uh, and no pun intended on the smart here. These are brilliant uh, scientists. Uh, uh, my MIT group hates it when I say I have my smart people in Singapore and then I have you here at MIT. So it, it's an easy management problem. 
My leadership is hands-off in that sense of working with the group. It is terribly exciting to have our annual workshops and hear all the breakthroughs and go visit Singapore and talk to all the students and postdocs in the labs there and catch up on the exciting science that's going on. That's what keeps the blood going in an old person's uh, body is the excitement and the breakthroughs of the science going on. Pete takes this multidisciplinary approach, which is really, really paying off. So I'd love to hear his advice for a young postdoc who might just be starting out on their career if they were thinking about so many different areas of science starting to be interwoven. What does Pete say? This is the same task I face with uh, counseling undergraduate students, graduate students, postdocs. What should I do with my life? The first I, and this is this is 31 years of, of, of mentoring experience. The first thing is choose something that's the most exciting thing you can possibly think of. There are no purists doing one thing or the other. Sometimes we do combine and collaborate. That's the other side of the coin is it's a world of collaboration and team science now. It's hard to be a loner and make discoveries in this very interdisciplinary, very computationally intensive world. So a lot of what we do is multi-team collaborations on big projects. That's where science is going. That's where the frontier is. So that was Pete and his amazing multinational glow-spanning interdisciplinary team. So serendipitously, the day after we talked with Pete, I just stumbled the way that I do over a paper that, well, just kind of changed the way I thought about the impact of multi and interdisciplinary science and serendipity. So that was a really meta experience. So I wrote to the author. My name is James Evans, and I am a scholar of knowledge. Knowledge that we have and knowledge that we don't have. And that's about the best job description I've ever heard. So James has been looking at the connections between cross-disciplinary research and surprise. Yeah, it seems that you actually can measure surprise, and serendipity is probably not always what we think it is. A lot of what we're exploring and finding is things that seem extremely serendipitous sometimes aren't quite as serendipitous as we expect. So, for example, if we look at, um, we've got a paper that's just coming out that shows that if you interview people about the the papers that were the most influential to them and the ones that they wrote, that um, systematically the ones that they say were the most influential, the pattern more than anything else we find is that they came from people that were at their own institution, but not in their own department. And these are papers that were the most surprising to them, the most influential, and the ones that they knew the best. So these are people that they met by accident at the Whole Foods. Their kids played football together. They're on an unexpected committee together. But the structure of that serendipity is that even though that person may have experienced the interaction that they had with somebody else as highly unexpected, they themselves were probably thousands of percent more likely to have that interaction than anybody else. Now, this is quite a tricky concept to understand. I found it really hard. And James used something called a hypergraph, which, again, was a whole new term for me. New for me, too. What is it? If you think of a graph as a set of pairwise connections between nodes, 
So you can imagine a bunch of dots that are connected by strings. A hypergraph is sets of dots that are connected by their presence in the set. So you've got a bunch of overlapping sets rather than a bunch of single lines that connect uh, one another. These sets comprise the research ideas and the context from which these research ideas are drawn. So you can imagine a set combining ideas from astrophysics with ones from chemistry, with ones from potentially economics or the analytical social sciences. You can imagine ones combining certain areas of biomedical research and cancer therapeutics with new materials and fluorescences, which are kind of discovered and analyzed in a completely other part of the space. One of the powerful things that we discovered is that when we model things as sets and not as a network of things, um, we end up getting more predictive results about what discoveries will occur in the future. So ideas are moving with respect to the ideas that are bumping into ideas that are nearby. So these are random things that are very likely to happen as researchers wander around their contexts, show up at their conferences, they bump into other people in their department. This is the kind of random connections that are being simulated as a function of this high-dimensional hypergraph. I'm getting that James was dealing with huge data sets, large models, artificial intelligence. Exactly. The technology around here is AI-enabled technology. But what really fascinated me about James's work was the way that surprise was defined. So surprise is defined as in a similar way to the violation of expectations about where the future is going to go. So that's pretty objective a definition. How did James and his team then use that definition in their outcomes? There is a quantity that Claude Shannon, who invented information theory back 80 years ago, that was called the surprisal. It's a quality that can be measured in bits. It can be measured in decimal scale, et cetera. But the idea is it's really the inverse of the probability of these events. Right. If you expect something extremely, then when those expectations are violated, you're surprised. And we can particularly calculate the surprisal, which is this inverse probability. So the way they fed into this research was um, our models were highly predictive of 90 plus percent of the combinations of ideas in the biological sciences and the physical sciences in other kinds of uh, inventive activities we saw based on patents. But the ones that we couldn't predict were the most interesting and important ones, which is to say, so we predicted normal science, the science that like everybody expected would happen as a function of what was there before, which is what most people do. But the things that violated those sets of expectations were the things that garnered by far the most attention in terms of widespread citations and awards in the scientific community. Content combinations, which is where different keywords, concepts, ideas are combined in unusual ways. You pull together an idea from this physics journal and this biology journal and this chemistry uh, conference. Um, those combinations of context dramatically predicted outsized citations and attention in the scientific space. And, uh, and it's interesting, those are not always the things that get awards because awards are given by contexts. 
For example, awards given by the Nobel Committee in Physics are systematically going to discriminate about this, about things that violate the boundaries of physics? Exactly. And to measure surprise, you have to look at a wider range of things like people's backgrounds, the backgrounds of their teams that they're working with, the backgrounds of the quote-unquote expeditions or adventures are, that they're going on in science where they're exploring all of these things. We found systematically that lower levels of surprise were associated with surprising people who had who combined diverse and unexpected backgrounds and surprising teams that brought together unexpected combinations of experiences. High levels of surprise um, were associated with surprising expeditions where people from one part of the scientific space traveled across that space and solved the problem with kind of their alien perspectives and tools. Has James reached a point where, based on this research and this year's publications, he's in a position to accurately predict those papers and publications that say in three to five years are going to have the most impact in the scientific community? I believe that we're going to be able to predict more papers. For example, recent work that we've been doing with large language models that we're tuning to be trained chronologically so they can maximize the very specific likelihood of claims made inside these papers are accurate for many kinds of papers that emerge in the space. But surprising events happen. And when I say surprising events happen, I mean, we have no indication from the literature that certain tools can solve certain problems. That's in nature. It's not in the literature. And so uh, many of those connections are being attempted. Most of them fail. Occasionally one succeeds. When it succeeds, it's surprise, which is to say its ability to reconfigure the space is the very thing that drives success. For us, we're realizing the importance of these models is their ability to be surprised. In the same way that like Alexander Fleming, the moment he saw a Petri dish mold inside uh, that was repelling bacteria, you know, it was the moment he realized there was like a possibility there. He knew there was something there. So that famous example that we use all the time and it's overused, right? Alexander Fleming discovering Ray. But it made me think, what else stuck in James's mind as papers that have had very, very high levels of surprise, as it's defined, with a large distance between the two fields and have had a disproportionate impact? I can send you a list of hundreds of such examples. Some of the most substantial ones in the context of computer science is where you see in the early kind of 2010s, um, the, the transfer of reinforcement learning ideas that kind of came initially from behavioral psychology and then kind of got inculcated in the context of economics research. And then they got adopted or digested into deep learning, behavioral psychology and psychology. These ideas had never really entered the deep learning space. I would say transformed AI into a kind of a new level of kind of powerful robot intelligence that, that was inconceivable previously. Extraordinary. So based on what James has discovered, what advice does he have for a research team digging into a problem, whether that is a biology problem or applied engineering or one of these disciplines that we as humans separate, but nature does not? Okay, Dodie, just get ready. We're talking about surprise. You're going to be surprised 
what we need is aliens but not just any old aliens if they're looking for outsized success which is to say they're willing to undertake the risk to engage in that success then they need to find some friendly aliens which is to say they need to find some tools and expertise that is unfamiliar to their colleagues that is completely unregistered in their departmental education um and so they need to to scatter and explore spaces that have formalisms that could be relevant but have not been conceived with uh respect to to these things it requires jumping through or arbitraging these high dimensional holes between communities there's necessary risk in fact you want to rack up your failures you want to be able to fail fast and kind of plow through a number of different ideas in fact we have um have a paper in nature from 2019 with some wonderful colleagues at Northwestern where we show that accelerating failures so the rate of your increase in failures is one of the best ex-ante predictors of your ultimate success what was really nice about what james said is it does sound a lot like you know those motivational posters with trite aphorisms that you see on in offices and stuff it's like if you're not failing you're not pushing your limits or Aimer is a teacher, not an undertaker. Um, they're so true, but it, you know, it just it, it gets a bit boring. But here we have objective analysis and a method of trawling through opportunities to learn from failure. And that's not starting over from scratch every single time. Maybe not starting from scratch, but I feel like we need to go back to the beginning. I'm curious about what drove James to go into this field. I've always been interested in where ideas come from. A social scientist by original training, originally as an undergraduate and anthropologist, and I'm really interested in how it is that worldviews and kind of sets of ideas and languages kind of collide uh, and create friction that generate ideas and accidents in the context of potential discovery. When I was at Harvard and I took this wonderful class on network analysis and graph theory and I realized why wow, you could apply this to ideas and you could kind of measure the space and the manifolds and the landscapes and the maps of ideas in the same way that you could with networks in a computer system or social networks and that was uh, I would say really the the point that emerged into to work that I'm doing now So in this episode we've learned a ton about how diverse teams based on background or location or scientific discipline or culture can really help us in the fight against infectious disease and that that can lead to the greatest of surprises and I think that that should inform also how we think about our teams and yeah. how we think about working with teams and building teams what do you think I agree and I think it is it's maybe it's about just keeping your eyes and your ears open because you don't know what people don't know, even though I feel like now I'm spouting one of those aphorisms, you know, one of the, <laughs> one of the, yeah, exactly. A big bumper sticker. But of course it is people who create these divides. And if we just look at nature and learn from nature, we might be surprised to learn something. There it is coming all together. There you go. It's beautiful. And, and the fact that you might be a, polished reader of history and that can bring different insight into the way someone looks at a problem in biophysics i don't know 
but we should never just say, well, you don't belong here, so you right. contribute. We want people Amen. who are from everywhere to belong to the places in which we work. So with that, our producer is Beth Armit Brewster. She definitely belongs here. Editing and mixing and supervision by Banda Productions. Music from Epidemic Sound. My name is Connor McKeffney. I'm Dodie Axelson. Please do rate us with the most stars you ever can on Spotify or whichever your platform you are using to listen to us. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you on another episode of Discovery Matters.